Well, this is week three in the Proverbs here, and we, of, of 13, I think, total, up, up till Advent, up till the end of November. And we are doing this just topic by topic. The, the Proverbs, uh, we're, instead of just, you know, taking Proverbs 11 and the next week, chapter 12, um, because the different Proverbs can jump from subject to subject, kind of gathering week to week all the Proverbs on a certain subject. So we started off with what they have to say on friendship and being a, being a good neighbor, being a neighbor. And last week was work, and now we're looking at wealth this week. Uh, Tremper Longman, who has a great commentary and whom I take a lot from in this series, makes the point that this subject in particular, the Proverbs on wealth and poverty, is a really good example of how we should be really careful in the, when we're looking at the Proverbs in particular and reading them and studying them and quoting them, not to necessarily build a whole life doctrine on one isolated proverb. Um, the Proverbs, again, as a genre, they're typically they're proverbial sayings. That's where we get this from, they're proverbial sayings. They're generalizations. They are truths that are, they're, that are generally the case. They're generally true. They're sort of the fabric in the, of the universe and how it tends to work, but not always. Um, and, and so don't just have a fridge magnet proverb and say, well, this is all the truth. If the, this, is, this is all the truth that there is according to God on this subject, you know. Wealth is a blessing from God. It's good. Okay, well, there are Proverbs that say that kind of thing. Is that all they have to say about wealth? No. Okay, so, so read one proverb in light of the rest of the Proverbs on that subject, which I'll try to <clears throat> do in the next few minutes here, but in your own study as well. Uh, and then also read, so read the Proverbs in light of the Proverbs, but also read the Proverbs in light of the other wisdom literature. So you have balancing books like the book of Job, and where a man has a ton of wealth and it's been given to him from the Lord as a blessing um, because he is a righteous man and God has blessed him with so much wealth, not just not just camels and, you know, the wealth of that day, beasts and that sort of thing, um, camels and donkeys and sheep and, and so on and goats. But but also he, I think he has a, a good number of children at the end, 10 a uh, good number of children and a, and a good wife and health, but God takes it all away from him. Um, God takes it all away from him. And it's a, it's a bit of a, a theodicy and experiment. And there's a lot there. He doesn't take it away from him because of anything Job has done that is bad. And also like in Psalm 73, we have a picture of uh, a man who is wealthy or people who are wealthy and they're wicked. So, so, it's not like if you're righteous, God's going to make you wealthy. That's not the case. Now, that sometimes does happen. Righteousness can often lead to wealth, and the Proverbs talk a lot about that. So we read Proverbs in light of other Proverbs. We also read them in light of other wisdom literature in the Bible. Job and the book of Ecclesiastes really counterbalance the book of Proverbs. So read the whole of wisdom literature, and then we read all that within the light of the entire Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture is one of the best interpretive uh, sort of phrases, uh, bit, the rules of, of hermeneutics, which is, which is text interpretation. The Bible is its own best interpreter. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. If you find something hard in the Bible, read it in light of the other easier things that the Bible says um, throughout the rest of the Bible. Okay. Um, so if there's one isolated, really hard thing in the Bible, don't base necessarily base your life on it. Um, what does the whole Bible say? Let that shed light on that one hard and, and singular thing that the Bible is saying. Okay. Um, so let me start. It's just four points to get a, a bit of a trajectory 
uh, here. And the, the first is that wealth is a great good. I think if there's a leader among uh, the sub-themes on wealth and poverty in the Proverbs, this is the leader. Wealth is a great good, point one. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. That is wisdom, lady wisdom, wisdom personified um, speaking. And so lady wisdom is saying, look, I am from God. I was with God when he made all things. I am from the beginning. To have me is to have blessing. And guess what else is with me? If you have wisdom, riches and honor come along with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. Okay, so see how wealth and righteousness are tied together? That is very common in the Proverbs. A lot of times, conversely, is, is often as I speak about, well, I'll speak more on wealth. But the flip side of that is poverty. And a lot of times the, the, the Proverbs will attach poverty to, um, to sin and to wickedness and to evil and to immorality. And of course, like I've just said, that is not always the case. And our Lord chose to be born poor and to live poor, um, fairly poor. And he died with, he died with one thing to his name. And that thing was auctioned off at his feet as he, as he died on the cross, his chosen method of, of execution. Um, we did it to him. He orchestrated it. <clears throat> so, so if our Lord was poor, then poverty can't just be because of, of sin and bad choices. It often is. It often is. Um, and again, the, the life of every single life of every single different homeless person on the street is different. So you really can't generalize, but I'm about to. I'm not about to, but I will say many that I've spoken with are there because of alcohol, drugs, poor choices they've made. Um, it's just a fact of life, and the Proverbs speak to that. Oftentimes, good habits and clean living and hard work lead to, and and saving bit by bit by bit, right, lead to wealth. Okay, so um, with wisdom is wealth. Wealth is a blessing from God. Let me underscore that. A lot of times I think if you're just reading the New Testament, you can think, um, okay, wealth, wealth and money are evil. No, Jesus says the love of money is the root of evil. Money is not evil. Money can get you a lot of good things. And things, God likes things. He made things. Stuff is good. Matter matters. You know, the, the proclamation that God saw that it was good over and over and over again, that commentary by Moses uh, in Genesis 1 where we get the first picture of the first stuff is really important. It's a theological statement that stuff and matter is good. It's not more... It's not lower on the hierarchy of being or the hierarchy of goodness or badness, right? It's not lower than spirit, than the unseen. It's, it's, uh, it comes after because God is spirit and God has always been. And then he made it at one point in time. He made things. But the idea that matter is baser and lower and less good than spirit is, is not Judeo-Christian. It's not biblical. It's Platonic. It's Grecian. It comes from Plato. Okay. So that's a heresy. Um, <clears throat> wealth is good. That's a direct quote, quote from Tim Keller, from whom I also take a lot, as well as from Trimper Longman, like I said, and from from Derek Kidner. Three commentaries that well, they take, they break down the Proverbs, uh, among other things, into topics. And so I've used them. So wealth is a good, right? And I would add poverty is evil. Now, God can bring good through 
poverty and evil often comes through wealth. But again, this is the first point. Wealth is good. It's a great good. And poverty is evil. To think otherwise, to think otherwise and that poverty is evil is, is to be naive. If you think that, you've probably just grown up with a lot of money and never seen anything else. It's naive and it's a foolish luxury only the rich can afford, right? To think that poverty is not evil. The New Testament has, a, has very few examples of the godly rich, but the Old Testament has lots. God blesses Adam, the richest person on the earth, the only person on earth for a time, but certainly the richest. He was given dominion over everything that God made. Abraham, Joseph, Job, David, Solomon, and so many others. That's just to name a few. In the Old Testament, God, God gifted and blessed great wealth. Um, this is one of the many reasons that we need to read the Old Testament, because the New Testament alone gives us an apocopated or a shortened view of reality. Um, the Old Testament gives us lots of examples of the godly rich, the rich that were made, um, their righteousness and their wealth were attached, and God blessed them with wealth, right? Um, I mean, Abraham, just to take one example that I mentioned out of, out of many that I did not, had, I think, what is, what is it, 314 men who were born in his house who were of fighting age that went with him to rescue Lot. So think about how many people must have, he must have, um, must have been part of his family. I mean, that, that's, that's in Genesis 14, 314, 300 something, 314 or so men born in his house. There were other, lots of other men probably that were not born in his house that he'd acquired for service and, and protection and stuff. Born in his house of fighting age, so between age 20 and 50. So he must have had thousands, a couple thousand at least, I would think, um, especially based on how many kids people had back then, of people in his, um, in his purview, sort of in his, under his protection and, and keeping. So that's just one small example of how God blessed Abram with massive wealth, even though he was a pilgrim in a foreign land that God promised to him, right? So let me read this um, quote by Martin Luther before moving to illustrate this point, because Martin Luther, honest, excuse me, Martin Luther often illustrates points with a punch. And then I'll move to sort of the counterpoint to wealth is a great good. Um, Martin Luther, in his preface to Ecclesiastes, where I did my thesis on Ecclesiastes on the first 11 verses, he cites 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5, and he says this, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For then it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And then he writes, Therefore it is foolish and wicked when many preachers inveigh against glory, power, social position, wealth, gold, fame, beauty, or women, thus openly condemning a creation of God. Government or power is a divine ordinance. Who has all power? God does. Who has all wealth? God does. So they can't be bad things in and of themselves, right? That's me. Okay, back to Martin Luther. Gold is good, and riches are conferred by God. A woman is a good thing, made to be a helper for man. He's, that's Martin Luther inveighing against the monkish um, and the Roman Catholic uh, priestly requirement that you could not get married, okay? For God has made all things to be good and to be useful for some human purpose. The proper contempt of the world is not that of the man who lives in solitude away from human society, nor is the proper, which, by the way, Martin Luther did. Um, for a time before getting saved. Uh, it's not uh, the man who lives in solitude away from human society, nor is the proper contempt of gold that of the man who throws it away or abstains from money, as the Franciscans do, but that of the man who, uh, but that of the man who lives his life in the midst of these things and yet is not carried away by them, as Jesus did, I might add. Right? 
So first point is wealth is a great good. That's one of the sort of the leaders uh, in the sub themes of Proverbs on wealth. So, but the second point is, it's not only a great good, it, wealth can produce, point two, wealth can produce great evil. It can deceive us. Wealth can produce great evil. It can deceive us. We can trust in it, thinking that it secures us. You see that in Proverbs 10, 15a. But you cannot take anything acquired here with you, and it cannot save your soul, more importantly, from hell. No amount of stuff can. The richest man on earth has no, his, he has built himself, or she has built herself, no fortress against uh, a rec- the reckoning to God that is coming once he or she dies. Matthew 16, 26, our Lord says that. What is it? What does it profit a man? This is one of the most haunting and sobering things that he says, and the most haunting and sobering verses, and certainly trenchant and terse in Scripture. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Think about that. The richest person on earth has not even come close to gaining the whole world. You're that rich that you've gained the entire world, but you forfeit your soul. The answer to that rhetorical question is, what does it profit a man? You're the richest man on earth, but you forfeit your soul. It it profits you nothing, nothing. But rather, on the contrary, wealth, a lot of wealth may help you get, (laughs) it may help you, and not only can it not save your soul, not only can wealth not save your soul from hell, it may help you get there but a lot of wealth may help you get to hell um, not because wealth is bad in of itself but because it can distract you it can deceive you into thinking it is your security and you can look to it instead of god to save you and to give you an identity and a hope and it is an it is a trap door to stand on and jesus illustrates that in the parable of lazarus and the rich man in luke 16 um wealth is good but the dangers of wealth are great which is why jesus talks about it more than any other subject paired with hell, hell and money. He talks about more than anything else, even than heaven. Wealth is good, but our hearts are prone. So here's the deal. So here, here, here's the rub. Here's the sort of nub of the, of the issue. Wealth is good, like I said in point one, but our hearts are prone to pride and perceived self-sufficiency. And money, lots of money, tends to inflame these things in the human heart. Uh, Tim Keller says often in his teaching that a rich man Things to, tends to think that he is an expert on everything and every subject, right? So I've, I've talked to men who have a lot of money and love to eat out at restaurants, and they think that they could run a restaurant, and they think that they could build up the perfect restaurant simply because they like food, and they know what they like. Oh, and that's a silly example. There are many more. Money tends to inflate your pride, which can lead to you thinking that you're just an expert on all sorts of things, including things of the soul, right? Um Money tends to make us proud. It tends, it's not bad in of itself, but it tends to draw out the bad things in our heart and to inflame them and to exacerbate them, to make them worse. So money tends to make us proud. Poverty tends to humble us. Now, have I met, have I met um, stingy, ungenerous, poor people or people with not a whole lot? Oh, Yes. Often. Have I met very wealthy, materially wealthy, rich people that have a lot of resources that are extremely generous and do a lot of good stuff with their money? I have. I have. Well, we've been on the receiving end of, of some of those people not in, in more ways than just material. Um, but money tends to make us proud and poverty tends to humble us, which is one of the reasons I think Jesus says um, 
with the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Not because they're better. They're not better. They could tend to see their poverty. Poverty helps us see our poverty. <laughs> it doesn't take much of an imagination when you're poor to see you don't have much. It does when you're rich. When you're rich, you still don't have much. But you're, you're deluded into thinking that you do. The only riches that count are riches in Christ. He is the one that gives us a true inheritance. We'll get there. So though it's an evil, um, it often helps uh, do good things to our hearts. And I'm talking when I say it, I'm talking about poverty. Poverty tends to humble us. And though it is in and, it, in and of itself, poverty is an evil. There won't be any poverty in heaven. In the new heavens and new earth, there'll be riches. I just read Psalm 65, and it's a bit, it just talks about that sort of prophetically. Beautiful. When the Messiah comes again, everything is going to be just bursting with life and riches, right? So poverty is an evil, but it often helps to do good things to our hearts, okay? Some more dangers of wealth. Um, wealth can become an idol. That's in Proverbs 10, 15, and 18, 11. It can make us dishonest. It can make us ruthless. We'll do anything to get it or to keep it, right? Uh, same with power. Wealth can distract us. I think that's one of the biggest evils in our society, certainly in my own heart. And uh, we see that in the third the third seed, the parable of the seeds that Jesus tells in all four Gospels. I think it's the only parable he tells in all four Gospels. I could be wrong on that. Fact check me, somebody. Write me a letter. Send me an email. Um, but in that seed parable, the third seed and the final seed that's not productive, that, that you don't want to be, is the one that most American Christians are. And that's terrifying to say. And I am very susceptible to this. And that is the seed that is fruitful and productive at first. And then it gets choked out in its productivity and its fruitfulness by what? By anxiety uh, and by riches. Right? And so, and, by the, and Jesus says, by the deceitfulness of riches. And it's choked out. It happens slowly. And then wealth can be a burden. Wealth can be a great burden. When you come into a lot of money, I mean, there's no better way. If you go study the lives of people that have won, come into huge lottery winnings, uh, it's almost always a guaranteed life winner. A lot of those people end up committing suicide. Um, everyone's your friend. You can't tell who your real friends are. People use you. You all of a sudden, things, things that were just kind of dormant in your heart all of a sudden are inflamed because... You're running to all these false things to satisfy you and to look to for security. Um, you haven't done the hard work of, of building that fortune and saving it and preserving it and growing it over time. So you don't have the character to be able to handle it. Okay, so wealth can be a huge burden. Um, and there's also a lot of responsibility. Even if you have wealth and you're dealing with it well, there's a lot of responsibility with that. Because what, in the end, everything is, is God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which means a thousand is often a number in the Bible for all. So he owns the cattle on all the hills, all the cattle on all the hills. In other words, God owns everything. We are, we're never, never owners, even of our own lives, of our children. We're not owners of anything, certainly not of our money. It's God's. How? It's a tool. Money is a tool, like time, like social connections, like your intelligence. Money, like your very breath, is a tool. How are you using it? How are you using it? Are you using it for your kingdom to build your own kingdom that's going to turn to dust when you die? Or are you using it for God's kingdom? Okay, so wealth can be a burden, it can also be a blessing. Okay, because the dangers of wealth are great, it must be guarded against. One of the great ways to do that is to give lots of it away often. Trevor Longman says those with wealth must be generous.
Um, generosity loosens our tight grip on money. It can remind us that money does not secure us. As we give it away, we can't rely on it as much anymore. It reminds us, secondly, that it's not our money, it's his. And that all we have is a gift from him, undeserved, even if it is earned through our hard work. I mean, we are able to work hard because of all that God's given us. And thirdly, giving can put our money to good use. Eternal use with an eternal yield, Matthew 6, 19 through 20, right? So the Proverbs uh, 3, 9 through 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruit of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. What is the author saying here? One, he says that giving to God first a portion of all that you have honors him. So the first fruit there is an agricultural um, thing. And it means that the first, when you plant a crop of a thousand acres, the first bit that starts out of those thousand acres, that starts to pop of wheat or of apples or whatever it is. Um, you don't wait until the whole thousand acres pops and take it all in. And then from that, give a tenth, give a portion, right? The first bit that comes, you give that immediately so that after you give that, you literally have nothing until the rest of it comes. So it's an act of faith, right? I'm, I'm going to have to change the way I give, I think, based on that. So, so that's giving to God of your first fruit in that way. It honors him. It's an act of faith. It's an act of giving to him your best. Um, and the result is that God, what does it say? God will give you an abundance that will overwhelm you. You won't even be able to contain the bounty. What's the, what's the exact word used? Then your barns will be filled with plenty. And your vats will be bursting with wine. It's a, it's a wonderful ancient Near Eastern picture of bounty. So wealth uh, is a great good. It can produce great evil. And thirdly, the wealthiest person became the poorest, sort of on the on the down on the downhill side of this of this hill of wealth in the Proverbs point three and the shortest point, but the most important. The wealthiest person became the poorest. And if I can finish that, so that the poorest, that's us, no matter how rich you are, you are born an enemy of God, headed to death and hell. We're all walking toward the grave because we are sinners. And that presents a huge, almost insurmountable problem between us and a holy God who can't look on sin, who can't be with sin. So the wealthiest person became the poorest so that the poorest could become the wealthiest. Um, Paul writes this, rather than explaining myself, I'm just going to read from Paul. In 2 Corinthians 8, he says, for you know the grace of God, excuse me, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does grace mean? I'm, I'm, I'm pausing here. I'm interpreting. Grace is a churchy word that we read and our eyes glaze over, our heart glazes over. We don't think about it critically. Grace means the favor of God that is not earned by us. And how is that acquired? It is acquired through the work of God in Christ, not through your work. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, his work on your behalf. That though he was rich, okay, he was so rich, guys, I'm interpreting again, I'm explaining. He was, Jesus was so rich. What is Paul talking about, though he was rich? When he was born? No, he was born poor. He was rich from, the, from eternity past up until the point he was born. He let go. He was the son and is the son of the living God, the only begotten, eternal God and son of God, fully God, the Son of God, privy to all the riches of God himself, and certainly of all creation. He let that go for a time. He became, he chose to become poor. For you know the grace of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, Paul says, he became poor. Why? 
so that you by his poverty might become rich. How do we become rich? We became rich in one way, through the poverty, the chosen poverty of our Lord. What does that mean? It means that his ultimate poverty is that, number one, he came and he let go of all the benefits of the Godhead and he lived in our skin. He lived as a true human. He chose to submit himself to the law in all the privations and the hardships this earth brings, the sorrows. He took that into himself in life, but in death, even worse. In death, he truly became poor. He was stripped of all dignity. He was shamed. He was beaten by his own creation. His beard was pulled out. He was spit upon. He was crucified. And worse than any of that by an order of a magnitude that we'll never understand. He had the wrath of God against sin poured out on him. And all sin of anyone who will ever look to him as Savior was punished in his person on that cross fully. That, my friends, death, hell, becoming sin itself, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that is true poverty. And it's through that, by his poverty, that we can become rich. Because he took our place, we take his place. We are given his inheritance. That is what faith grabs a hold of. It gives your sin to Jesus and it grabs and takes hold gladly and it's gladly given of all his inheritance as a true son of God. That is what faith, that is the exchange that faith allows. Um, so the wealthiest person became the poorest so that we, the poorest, could become the wealthiest. And that is really tells us kind of all we need to know about, about wealth and see how I'm reading. I'm reading what Proverbs has to say about wealth in light of the larger book that is put into the Bible, right? All the Proverbs drive us toward the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, right? So that's appropriate that we should read wealth this way as we look at what the Proverbs have to say about it. So finally, so it's a great good wealth is. It can, it can produce great evil. Thirdly, the wealthiest person became the poorest so that we, the poorest, could become wealthy. And then finally, uh, how should this shape our view of wealth, okay? Nuts and bolts, brass tacks. Um, God gives us our wealth to enjoy. Yes, it's a blessing. It's a good, it's a good thing, but mainly it's not just for us to enjoy. That's kind of full stop the American message. No, but mainly he gives us our wealth to enrich others with. Um, I remember Gary Haugen, who's the international justice mission founder and president still, I think he is an amazing man. And I remember early, early, uh, it was 2001. 2000 or 2000, 2001, early in uh, the life, a few years into the life of IJM, he came and met with a group of us and he said, he kind of unpacked, among other things, he unpacked the um, the feeding of the 5,000. And, you know, it's something Jesus did. It wasn't, a, it's not a parable. It's something he actually did. It happened in history. Um, he fed many thousands a few times. And in this feeding, he found a boy and from that, uh, the boy had a lunch that his mom had made for him. And if I say mom, I mean, it wasn't his dad. Come on, it was his mom. Moms are always the ones that make lunches, right? Um, I'm going to get an email from a dad that makes lunches for his kids. Good for you, man. Um, this guy had, he was by the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and he had his lunch. And Jesus took it. <laughs> um, boy, didn't that kid get some stuff back, though. He gave him everything that he had, right? Just what? There were 20,000 people there that were hungry, and the kid had 
uh, five loaves and two fish. It's a joke. It's enough because God takes what we have and he does amazing things with it. So he gives all. And Haugen's point was none of that. Haugen's point was this. So Jesus literally starts, he prays and he breaks the bread and he starts tearing apart the fish or maybe they just kept the fish whole. I don't know. But they start handing out. These people sit down in groups of 50 and he starts handing out. He has the disciples start handing out the food and the food is passed from group to group, no doubt. And everyone, all 20 plus thousand of them eat. And there are 12 baskets that Jesus, he doesn't like waste. And so they gather what's left over and there are over there are 12 baskets full, one for one for each disciple. Um, Hagen's point is this, as Jesus is multiplying all this stuff, enough for thousands of people. What did the disciples do? Did they say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Wow. Thank you. And as he multiplies more and more, it starts piling up around them and over them. And they are eating as fast as they can. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much. Do they keep that wealth to themselves? All the stuff that God has given them, put into their hands? No, they give it out. They feed people. That is what wealth is for. To keep it to ourselves alone would be as absurd as the disciples having kept that that stuff that was clearly for the feeding of so many. Um, Have you ever... Have you ever seen a really rich person who looks truly happy? You may have. It is rare. Often we see the opposite. A lot of wealth usually produces great sadness and misery in people. Conversely, as a young boy, I, I remember uh, gazing at photos on our kitchen fridge of families on the mission field who my parents supported. Um, I knew they were poor because they were spending their wealth to make others rich um, with the good news of Jesus. They were poor and they were often persecuted, which is its own form of poverty. But these poor people were always beaming with joy. They would usually have four, at least four kids, and they had chosen poverty. I mean, there's no such thing as a rich missionary, right? It's an oxymoron. I mean, there is. I'm sure there's an exception. But um, they were always beaming with joy. It radiated from their smiles and their eyes. You can't fake that. You can't fabricate that. And it comes from loving Jesus most and living like him and giving away your wealth to enrich other people. Um, it is truly more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus' words are true. They're either true or false, and they're true, and he said them, and they are true. You know it's true. When you give someone a Christmas gift and you see them open it, it, it just fills you up more than opening one for yourself. It just does. Um, Peter began to say to Jesus in Mark 10, verse 28, he said, See, we've left everything and followed you. And you know, Peter, he's he's looking for some payback. He's looking for some assurance from Jesus that their investment's not in vain. See, Jesus, in case you missed it, we have left everything and followed you. What did Jesus say? How did he respond? He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. In this time, did you mark that? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. He's realistic, right? We are the wealthy. The church who are truly living as the church, sharing the gospel, the riches of the gospel of fellowship in Jesus Christ with each other and with the lost, with those that they are around. They are the rich ones. With persecutions, Jesus says. And what? Phase two. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first.
God bless you all.